0: Welcome to the Brand Rounds Podcast, where we help healthcare professionals and medical device innovators build trust, amplify your reputation, grow in brand awareness, build authority, and differentiate your brand in the mindset of your ideal patient and client. My guest today is Chris Walker. Chris is the CEO of Refine Labs. He's an interesting cat. Wait till you hear from Chris. So he's somebody that has a background in the medical technology space, but he's somebody that started an organization that helps B2B companies grow their revenue, increase pipeline velocity, and ultimately lower customer acquisition cost. He has a great ability to communicate clearly from brand awareness, brand strategy, business development, and sound marketing principles. For those who are listening to us today on the healthcare side, he's going to combine practical application with great sound strategy. All right, Chris, here's my first question. True or false, you have thrown your phone down an elevator shaft within the past 72 hours?
1: I have. The phone, uh, it dropped somewhere between seven and 10 stories was recovered, still is on, but completely destroyed screen doesn't work, And, um, and the uh, replacement iPhone came today, but I'm actually unable to start using the replacement iPhone because the old iPhone is still on and I can't turn it off. And so I have to wait, I have to wait, I have to wait for it to die, um, and so, yeah, uh, it was um, an interesting experience for me to, to kind of like reflect on, on how much I rely on connectivity and my mobile device over the past 48 hours, not having one, taking my dog for a walk and reaching for my phone when I didn't have it or being like waiting in line and you know, going to answer a couple of LinkedIn comments because I use my phone when I'm on the go for efficiency. Like a lot of people, I'm not sure that take this same approach, and I think maybe there's something to to learn here. Which is like, while I'm walking my dog, I answer 20 LinkedIn comments on my posts. I comment on three people's posts. I clear a bunch of emails. I do all these different things in a in a time where uh, most people probably wouldn't have, wouldn't be productive. I don't know if that's a takeaway, but um, it is. The, the, the thing that's been really working for me is like. Uh, is using my device to augment my productivity.
0: Yeah, that's well said. So how did you get started in marketing? Talk me through that.
1: Yeah, let's go through it. So so I studied biomedical engineering and electrical computer engineering in college. I thought I, when I went to college, initially I thought that I was, uh, I wanted to be, to do pharmacy, to do research on on drugs in some way. Um, and then quickly realized that I couldn't handle organic chemistry. And so I transitioned into the engineering discipline. was at a really good school. Um, and, and then had success there. thought I was going to design medical devices. Electronic medical devices was the, the path that I thought I was going to take when I was 21 years old. And then I got out of college and I started working in some companies that was, did was doing engineering program, microprocessors and running different QA tests and realized that like that wasn't as fun as I thought but then I got this really interesting project where I actually had to go out and talk with a customer and and figure out what they needed and then spec the requirements of the device and then, and then at, at that point I was actually trying to design and build it but over the next course of the year I transitioned into upstream product management where I went, I moved to a different company within the holdings company that I worked for, and I would go out and all upstream. So, go out and talk to customers, define requirements, set features, do the research, set the positioning, understand the competitive landscape, do all these different things, and build a product roadmap over the next two, three, five years about how the product is going to evolve and how we're going to be positioned to be successful with that way by knowing what the market needs, by going out and talking to people and not taking what they tell you directly but interpreting, asking open-ended questions, interpreting what they're saying, and then trying to understand what they actually mean, and then designing products that solve for what we thought they actually needed. Um, so that was kind of like the next step in my, uh, in my career, and then I moved on to an, a, another medical device company. And at that one, they already had a mature product that had been in the market for five years. And so my role was mainly downstream. And so during that place, it was like, we have this product, it's a medical device. So if we're going to make any significant updates to it, it's going to have to go back to FDA for 12 months. So like we pretty much have this to sell. So what is going to be the most effective way to bring this and, and, and sell it faster and get more people in the market. It was disruptive, innovative, um, was trying to displace a technology that had been gold standard for the past 40 years, um, had good clinical trial data behind it. And so, the And the way that most medical device companies will go to market in that instance is hire 50 field salespeople, have them knock on doors at hospitals, go to trade shows, buy a lot of print, um, you know, make friends with the major conference and try and like have them do advertising for you, spend give them $10,000, send out an email for you. Um, and so I assessed all of that. I actually went, I visited 50 hospitals during the first uh, six months that I worked there, a lot of time on the road. And at one particular hospital, I think this is a really interesting insight for your listeners. I was in a a, a PICU at two in the morning um, in Atlanta. And I, it's very quiet there. I started looking around, like there was some patients on our device. It's very quiet. There's not a lot of family there. And then I just look around and All the nurses, the respiratory therapist that's on call, and the physicians, when they're not taking care of patients, were on either Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, on their device. And this was back in 2016, pretty big insight for me at that time in my career, and I figured out, okay, so if they're on these platforms, how are we going to figure out how to, uh, to get their attention and tell them... A story in a way where they want to pay attention which then educates them on the things that we want them to know which then creates awareness of our brand and our product and leads to more inbound opportunities and so i went down that path for a good 24 months at that company um did uh, a lot of like really started to build how do you build a modern content strategy that you can distribute effectively using online channels which then drive a lot of inbound opportunity, as opposed to you needing to hire more sales reps to go outbound. And what we found is that as we started doing it more over the next uh, maybe like 12 months after starting, that 33% of our net new hot customer acquisition was coming from people coming to our website and saying, I want to talk to your sales rep, not our sales rep sending emails and visiting hospitals saying, I want to talk to your medical director and business comes a lot faster. You win it a lot more and your reps become more productive, more efficient, make more money, and you need less of them when you have more people knocking on your door instead of you knocking on their door. Um, Yeah, that's
0: really, really well said. You know, I I know in your area of expertise and and at the time of this recording, we're in a period of uncertainty with COVID-19. What are some of the specific roadblocks, present tense, that you feel, especially with your experience in medical device, that medical device leaders need to watch out for?
1: Yeah, totally. For the rest of this podcast, let's just stay in medical because I think it's super relevant right now. Um, so uh, I think the number one thing that um, the medical device... First off, there are some medical device companies that will benefit from this really unfortunate situation because they provide products that people need right now. And so that's, that's benefit to some. Um, but looking more globally at like uh, all the different dynamics that are happening. Some things that I think people should think about is if one of your main line items for medical device companies is probably somewhere between fifteen and forty percent of their their marketing budget are going to trade shows, trade show booths specifically. You're going to figure out how to how to reallocate those dollars that actually drive business. I think that people, if they look back in two years and they execute well right now, they will consider this circumstance to be a positive because they figured out better ways to use that money to drive revenue. Um, so that's kind of a silver lining there. Another one is your reps aren't going to get into hospitals right now. So if you're predominantly driven by our reps are going to call on people and walk into hospitals and try and find the right person to talk to and generate opportunities that way, you're going to really struggle. Um, the third one is probably in the same vein is that People are probably, unless they absolutely need your product for what they're facing right now, probably aren't going to buy it, probably aren't open to looking at new ways of doing things and might not be open to even having a discussion. So if your business is, purely, is mainly driven on going to trade shows and doing outbound sales, you're going to have to find ways to adjust right now. And I would say most medical device companies... That are not the big strategics or owned by the big strategics fall into the, those buckets. Companies that are sub sub a couple hundred million fall into the bucket that I just mentioned, where they go to trade shows and they do outbound.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, as a preview or a promo to this podcast with you, I, I put on my LinkedIn channel that I was going to ask you this next question, and it really raised some good comments and some good responses. So here it is. Tell me something that's true, and almost nobody agrees with you on it.
1: Hmm. Um, Facebook ads are the number one way for medical device companies to communicate with their customers. Tell me more. Um Well, I've done this at multiple companies, and I know because we, uh, one company went from spending $500 a month on Facebook ads to $50,000 a month on Facebook ads and watched our pipeline and revenue grow proportionally with the spend because we knew how to do it. Um, The main reason is, one, because Facebook owns a lot of other media properties like Instagram. And so if you're selling to someone like an ER doctor, you have to think about what – the. a lot of people will push back and be like, but – Facebook is a consumer platform and doctors are too professional to use Facebook. But if you go in and audit the 40-year-old ER doctor, Susie, that lives in Orange County, she lives on Instagram. It's your job to figure out how to communicate with her on that platform. And so the reason that it works so well for medical device companies relative to other companies that we work with, like SaaS companies that are selling to salespeople, is that the targeting is so clear. The targeting is so clear. And what I mean by that is you can go into Facebook and you can say, I want to show this ad to people that have the job title ophthalmologist or pediatric intensivist, or like the American Association of Respiratory Care, or studied emergency medicine. There are plenty of ways That you can get to exactly who you want to at probably 90% of the entire U.S. market by running ads on those platforms for super inexpensive in perpetuity to deliver them information, which creates awareness about the clinical data of your product, the case studies of customers that have had success with it, the new big customer like Boston Children's that you brought on last week and what the success that they're having with the product or why they chose it or why they switched from your competitor and deliver that information effectively inside a feed that people use every day, as opposed to waiting for the once a year time where you can go to that conference and hope that person stumbles upon your booth Mm -hmm. or to wait 90 days until your sales rep after a bunch of emails and stopping by the hospital and a bunch of networking and going to events is able to have a conversation with that person. This is, this is the difference. Um, and so, yeah, for uh, for those reasons and just be able to see how effective it is, I believe that 99.9% of people that work in medical device wouldn't agree with what I just said. Maybe after I just painted a little bit of that picture, they might be more open to exploring it, but probably not because it's very traditional in mindset. Um, and so I would just, uh, I would encourage people to, to just think differently.
0: What's your favorite word? That you use
1: with your clients. Empathy. Empathy, which can encompass a lot of different things, but I think a couple of the key points that if I was drilling down would be a deep understanding of the people that you're trying to reach not a surface level understanding. I think a lot of companies, I think medical device companies relative to some other industries are better at that because their marketers are are more strategic and less tactical. So a lot of their marketers actually have a better understanding of their market than some of the other industries we work with. However, they they don't know how to deploy that knowledge in a way that actually works. They're more strategic, less tactical. If you look at SaaS companies, they're all tactical and no strategic. And when you put them together, that's when it actually works. And so... Um, there's one really understanding your customers. The second one is having a deep empathy for how a buying process actually happens. How buying processes do not happen is you cold call someone and you reach them and you give them your 30 second pitch and then you go down next week to do a demo and everyone's there and everyone loves it and they buy stuff. That's not how it works. That's how most sales processes are designed in medical device. Um, and how it actually works is you give people all access to a lot of information, you figure out how to give it to them very efficiently and in ways that they want to consume it, which then helps them learn about why your product, which is new and innovative is better than the gold standard product they've been using for 40 years that they're comfortable with. How do you just, how do you create enough information and awareness and illuminate the, the better way of doing things so that they're open? to having that conversation with your sales rep, that's marketing. Um, And so companies, a lot of medical device companies do a very, very, very good job at setting up clinical trials that position their product and prove that their product is better than alternatives. What they don't do as well is communicate the results of those clinical trials to their potential customers.
0: Yeah, I love the depth of your answer uh, in that. I mean, you and I share you and I share that common background that we both have been in medical device. We, we understand the sales aspect. We understand how it is to work with doctors and hospital contracts. And, you know, it, it ties in nicely with my next question, Chris, do you think that branding is counterintuitive for most healthcare professionals? Let's classify that as somebody with MD or DDS at the end of their name. And then let's extend that into medical device companies.
1: Um. So what do you mean? Like I'm a, I'm a dentist and I'm trying to figure out whether brand's important or not?
0: Yes. Uh, you're, you're a dentist. You're a neurosurgeon. You're a medical device company.
1: Um, so if you're a dentist or a surgeon and you have a private practice, then whether you recognize it or not, your brand is everything. Your customers come and see you. They like you or they don't like you, they have that perception, they decide whether to come back, they tell their friends about their perception when they get asked, you get different Google ratings when people search you. That is essentially how people view you. It's very easy to think about brand as what people say about you when you're not there. Um, And so I, I think it would be very naive as someone in that position to think that Brand is not important. Um, yeah, so I, I think really, really simply, that's how I how I view it. Now, um, that is once people are have already used you, what they say about you. But if you look at it from another side, is how do you create more awareness about what you do, which then drives more people to be open to coming to see you as a dentist? Um, for geo local providers like that. There's a lot of things that people used to do. They would sponsor the softball team or they would go to the town hall meeting or whatever they needed to do to create awareness of what they did as a professional, which then created more business for them. And I would argue that there are just more effective ways today to accomplish the same core mission. Um And so some of those things that I think uh, could work really well. um, I'll give you an example for one that I think is super interesting that some people that are in private practice might be able to take away right now. That was in Miami. We were doing an event in January. Um, There was a, a, a lawyer that we were talking to that was trying really hard to market on social LinkedIn and Instagram to get more clients and they were talking about, uh, they were trying to talk about law, but there's like patient confidentiality and a lot of different legal things where you can't give advice on the internet. So they kind of were like stuck and it wasn't working. And then all of a sudden, she just started posting information and content about the things that she does with video games because that's an interest of her. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people that also liked video games recognized that she was a lawyer and she got more business that way. And so there's a couple of paths here. One is by demonstrating that you're an expert in your domain, which I think most people will want to do. If you're a dentist, show people how to take care of their teeth without coming to see you, give them new tips, share new clinical research that gives them new approaches to do that. The second one is show people outside of that piece, things that you enjoy that make you a human, where people can attach to you in different ways, which then create affinity to everyone well, most everyone will have use a dentist how do you get more people to connect with you as a human which then leads to more businesses you as a dentist
0: yeah you know yesterday chris i was speaking with david meerman scott and and rako his daughter who is about ready to become a doctor herself and they shared a story about a dentist and your story related to this who was really interested in skateboarding and same thing. He was kind of going down that traditional fashion of, you know, how to prevent, you know, a toothache, you know, cosmetic dentistry. And then he was encouraged to talk about his love of skateboarding. And then that led to people finding commonality with him. There was an empathetic connection there. Uh, it built up authority in different ways. It, he redecorated his office and today he's flooded with people. And, and so I think you, you gave a great example. You know, you wrote a post uh, recently, and I really got a lot of value out of it. It's where you talked about how the next 12 months you can go about changing your life. And, and you put one or two adjustments. Uh, well, actually, you had many adjustments. But I'd be curious, what are one or two adjustments that we need to make now that in this current season at the time of this recording that can really change one's life?
1: Yeah, so um, the first thing is I I think some people misinterpreted the beginning of that post. Some people misinterpreted it it as this is what you need to do over the next 12 months. That's not that's not at all what the post was. And So to just kind of dive a little bit deeper into what I meant is we are approaching a pretty substantial, potentially a pretty substantial economic slump right now. People that have jobs that think they're safe will lose their jobs. Companies that think they're good will go out of business. People um, will, that all those things will happen. On the flip side, people that are in their jobs that step up will be given new opportunities to shine leaders that haven't been given that opportunity will in these times have chances that they may not get. So there's a plus and a minus here. And so given that landscape, it is up to you, how you want to adjust. If we, so the way, one of the examples that I gave earlier was that I've adjusted my my schedule. One of the things that's fully inside of my control is how much effort and how smart I am about what I do, how much effort I put in. So I've transitioned to uh, six days a week. So work on Sundays, maybe not as long. And most days are going to be 10 to 12 hour days. Um, And with that said, given the situation that's going on right now, I will probably work more and get less than I was 90, 90 days ago, but it's better than working the same amount that I was 90 days ago and going out of business. And so that's just one. just kind of wanted to paint a little bit more of a picture of the, of the essence of the post is I'm not sure that people understand the magnitude of the situation right now, which is why I was trying to drive that point home.
0: Yeah, I, I took it that way. I thought you did a great job of that. And, uh, and, I I like how you talked about some of the rituals that you're creating. Some of that is time. Some of that is priority. So I thought I, I understood it uh, and it came across to myself and uh, to some of our readers very, very well. So where do you think that B2B is going to evolve
1: from today? Given, given kind of like specific to the landscape change right now. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the things that I think will happen, um, and we'll see kind of like how all of this plays out. But some of the things that I think might happen are um, one, we will see a rebalance in commercial budgets to less of a sales allocation. And it gets redistributed to more on the customer success and marketing side and less on the sales side. Right now, if you go, if you audit a lot of, um, you know, let's just say sub $100 million medical device companies, their commercial budget is 70% sales, it's less marketing and success. I mean, that, that's a guess. I think that that can go plus or minus 20%, but it's heavily weighted on sales. Um, and so I think, I think companies right now should adjust, like the way that we're adjusting is way more focus on our existing customer base. We're not trying to upsell them. We're trying to make sure that they're successful and that we retain them. I think that effort matters. Um, and then conversely, I think companies that are um, that are doing marketing are going to have to change the way they do marketing. There's no sense in reallocating money from the sales budget to the marketing budget if you don't know how to use it. and so and I think a lot of medical device companies will fit fall into this bucket where They are not spending $3 million on their trade shows this year and they can't do the X, Y, and Z things and they will not know how to spend it and they'll go find an agency partner that sucks and they'll go waste their money. They'll start doing Mm -hmm. PR. They're doing things like that. So I think that's a a risk for people is if you don't know what to do with it, then you got to really figure that out. Most medical device companies have not been on the treadmill for the past five years trying to figure this stuff out so that they were ready for this point right now. Um, Companies will need to figure out and be experts in digital content, social execution, and 99% of medical device companies aren't. Um, So that's one thing. Um, Another thing that I I perceive will happen is that a lot of companies that are venture-backed and are not profitable and have poor unit economics and have a poor growth trajectory will go out of business or fire sale to a strategic and get consolidated and their investors will lose money. Um, I think that will happen. Companies that don't have more than twelve months of cash and are not profitable, I think, are in a very, uh, a, uh, a very risky situation right now. I think we'll see a recorrection where businesses that get built have to be built on a good foundation, which many have not been over the past, you know, six six to ten years.
0: What does being ridiculously
1: creative mean to you right now? Um. To me, not much. Actually, Um, I think uh, I I don't think that you need to be ridiculously creative to be successful. Um, I don't consider what I do to be that creative at all. People would pretend that it's innovative, um, but it's not. It's just literally just watching what's happening in the world and not looking at the things that were happening five years ago and not listening to people that were successful 10 years ago and doing what they did, but looking at the world right now and making an assessment on my own and making my own choices. I mean, maybe that is the definition of creativity. I I, I don't feel like it is. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that the difference is mainly that a lot of people, have had no creativity in their approach over the past 10 years. So it feels to them like they need to be ridiculously creative.
0: Yeah. You and I have shared that you and I have both escaped cubicle nation, if you will, and we've made some transitions. What's the worst fork in the road, bad decision that you regret that you could share with someone listening to us right now that is probably at the intersection of personal and professional.
1: Um, I, I don't look back and consider any of my choices to be big mistakes um, because they got me to this point. And when I was in that position, it, I made the choice. I live with the choice. It was the best choice I could make at that time. So I don't look back and be like, Oh, like that really hurt me. I would say um, the, uh, the thing for like kind of a, on the younger end, the thing that changed my career is at 26, I started working a lot more and I started, I stopped doing the things that people were supposed to do. I stopped going out with my friends and drinking on on Friday and Saturday nights. And I spent that time reading books and learning and becoming a practitioner. And I can remember vividly tons of nights working in a medical device company at two in the morning on a Saturday running Facebook ads or on the phone with HubSpot support, trying to use their product in a different way or all those different things. And when I made that switch and I took control over my career, that's when my life changed. And so that's kind of like one, uh, one little nugget that I think uh, I think people could could attach to, but to like, to say um, that like one thing that I did, like changing jobs from here to here was a bad thing. No, it wasn't like, I moved from the medical device company to a much smaller startup at the surface level like and I was only there for a year. At the surface level it could have been, you know, that was the wrong choice for me. But in reality, I moved to a smaller company and I saw what a 1 million dollar venture backed unprofitable startup looked like at 20 people. I saw that they had six SDRs that were cold calling people and not generating revenue. I saw how their sales leader operated. I saw how little focus they had on product. I saw how wasteful their spending was. I saw how easy they thought they thought it was to continue to raise money and burn money. And then you and so that experience then then encouraged me to look around in the world and recognize how many other companies are doing that right now. How many other companies don't understand marketing are entirely sales focused? Why there's so much sales and marketing misalignment. It's not because of what people think. It's not because of the fact that people think that the metrics are wrong. It's so much higher level than that. It's because there's a misalignment because they are sales driven companies and sales is forcing marketing to do the wrong things, which then drives marketing to do the wrong things and not get the right results. And so until sales and marketing become equal partners and people understand the distinction between sales and marketing and operate that way, we're going to continue to that misalignment. People think they're doing marketing. They're actually doing sales. Mm.
0: My final question is, what's a question that I did not think to ask you, but that we should discuss?
1: Hmm. I think your questions have been pretty, pretty good. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to think of like a a different direction. We could go to just drop a little bit more, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more value for the the medical device companies specifically. Um, because I think, I just think there's, uh, it's not that I think I know I did it. I saw like, um, the $30 million medical device company, and the okay, so I, I know where, I know where to go from here. Um, so one of the we'll uh, just kind of drop this and we'll see where it ends up. And I'm, if you have a follow-up question, I'd really encourage it because I'm kind of going off the cuff right now. So um, especially with medical device companies that's, that sell in one of two different models or both, and mo- a lot of them do. The first one would be a land and expand strategy. We need to get into an account, they see the success with the product, and we make most of the revenue later on upsells of more devices. We need to sell these two devices to this one department. And then over the next five years, we're gonna have 100 devices across a bunch of different departments. That's one situation. The other situation is we need to sell this device in order to get the consumable revenue on top of it. Every pay per patient, disposable, whatever you wanna look at it. medical Most medical device companies fall in one or two or both of those buckets. In those situations, they need to start looking at the metrics like a software as a service company would. They need to change the metrics that they look at. Um, so one of the thing, one of the big ones that people need to look at is net new customer acquisition cost. So in companies in a land and expand model, do not look at it this way, and it's a very risky proposition because the expansion revenue. Hides the inefficiencies of net new acquisition. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. you can't sell you can't sell one hundred devices to that hospital if you don't have the first two in there, and the first two are the hardest part. And so you need to you need to split out between expansion revenue and net new revenue, and then calculate your acquisition costs of every new account. And if you are a sales focused company. That number is going to be astronomical, most likely. How much money is it costing you in all of your all-in sales expenses related to net new acquisition, not customer success or account management in order to get that new account? And how much from a marketing expense for marketing-sourced revenue is it costing you to to get that net new account? And what I found when I did this is that the customer acquisition cost of your, te- of your sales team going out and trying to acquire a customer versus your marketing team generating a quality lead that closes to revenue at a high rate, the-, the difference in those costs is going to be 6x higher on sales only. Okay? And so if you think about scaling your business and you're looking at that metric, then You have two ways to scale. You can hire more salespeople. You know, it's going to be 6x more expensive, or you can figure out how to do marketing, which then propels you to a much faster growth if you're open and willing and able to figure it out. But most companies aren't. They just continue to run the same play that they've been running since 2004, when they built their business before the internet was mature, especially in this this market. And it's declining in effectiveness. It's becoming more expensive to scale. And so... Um, I would really, really encourage people to look at net new customer acquisition cost, customer acquisition cost payback period, um, customer lifetime value. Those are some of the things that that I think people should look at. And then they need to break it out between source, was it sales source or was it marketing source. If it was inside of marketing, did it come from an event? Did it come from Google AdWords? Did it come from Facebook ads? Did it come from our website? Blah, 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 blah. And if you run that analysis, you're going to find little pockets of huge opportunity. But most companies... Either don't have the data infrastructure to measure it, don't care, don't know how to measure it, or don't or don't have the capability to. Um, and so, I think that's one like really detailed tactical uh, approach that I would recommend.
0: Yeah, that's really really helpful. You know, we're going to have several medical device CEOs that are listening to this. What does kind of that version of the best and the brightest marketing talent look like? Uh, based on your experience and moving forward?
1: Mm, Could you go one level deeper with that just so I can answer it?
0: Yeah, thanks. So um, in medical device companies now, it's, as you well know, there's an allocation, whether it's right or wrong, as to how many salespeople we have and how many marketing people we have. And then comprised in a traditional medical device company, there's typically, uh, not not for all companies, but upstream and downstream. Mm -hmm. I'm curious in this current season that we're in and what is the next generation of marketing talent going to look like from a job skills, from an attitude, from a, you know, talent level look like?
1: Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's really tough to answer. I think there's a lot of different backgrounds and experiences and, and, you know criteria, I think it'd be really difficult to put something in a box to say that that's the right person. But the things that I would look for, um, if I was looking to hire somebody at like mid-senior and up level, right? The things that I would look for is someone that has experience in both upstream and downstream, that understands both. Um, there's a lot, like we talked about before, there's a lot of marketers that can run ads, but have no idea about possessioning, positioning, messaging, customer research. They you need to have both. So that's, that's one is I'd look for experience in both sides. I push people that are all downstream to go do a couple years in upstream just to have it. I think that the net benefit of making that shift is super impactful. Um, the next thing it's kind of in the same vein would be people that know how to execute customer research research and talk about it without you asking in an interview, are they talking about in their 90 day plan that they're going to go and visit 50 hospitals? if they're not mentioning talking to customers they're not a marketer that i want to hire um um, i think that the next thing would be trying to i'm not exactly sure how to tease this out but teasing out how whether people think for themselves or follow others um i I think that would be a really hard one but i would say 95 percent of marketers across all industries just do what else do what someone else told them to do versus going and trying a bunch of things themselves and following what works. Um, Yeah,
0: that's, that's so good.
1: So that's really, really helpful. I go in and I've audited more than 12 software companies in the past six months, Um, big companies, you know, somewhere between 20 and $50 million have raised a lot of money, Um, I've audited more than 12 and 11 of them were doing the exact same thing. Every, uh, the, the metrics were consistent. The tactics were consistent. How I can look at a couple different metrics and know exactly what they're doing and why they're trying to do it and why it's not the best way to do things, but they're doing it because that's the way that we've been doing it for 10 years. Technology vendors are pushing to do it that way because it helps them sell their products. They don't think for themselves, and so, um, and they don't they don't look at look at it accurately. I say this from a place of empathy because in 2016, I followed what people told me to do. I made eBooks and I did webinars and I took those leads and I passed them to the sales team and they didn't. And we went to trade shows and we measured what happened and they didn't generate enough revenue to justify the expenses. And then, so I think a lot of people feel that, they might've not looked at it as such a granular detail. The problem is that 99% of people don't know how to take the money and go and find something better. Mm-hmm. And So it's like, how do you find someone that has done something innovative? And the last thing that I would talk about for, for CEOs is understand what KPIs they're gonna score themselves on, not the ones you think they should be scored on. So that's an interesting one because there are not a lot of marketers that are going to go in and and whether it's director level or whatever, go in for an interview with a CEO and say, listen, the metrics that I'm going to measure myself on are marketing source, revenue marketing source, source, qualified pipeline, customer acquisition, cost, um, sales cycle length, win rate across the leads that I generate, how that impacts the overall growth trajectory of the business. Um, Once I am running this for nine months, I'm going to have projections about if we spend $50,000, I'm going to know within a certain level of accuracy how much pipeline we're going to generate and over the course of two sales cycle lengths, how much revenue we're going to generate. And that's, that's a marketer that I want to hire. Most marketers are not going to touch any of the metrics that I just mentioned. They're going to say, well, I'm going to get you leads, but I don't know if they're going to close because your sales team might not be good at closing them. That's a terrible way to look at it. What I've found over time, and a lot of people won't agree with me on this, but I, I know it because I've done it in enough companies, is that how you get the lead is the number one uh number one primary reason as to what the disposition of that lead is, not the quality of the sales rep. So Yeah, that's that's a great a, way. If you get a lead that's 90% done buying and they just need a quote, as long as your rep doesn't mess it up, they're going to buy something. If you give them a bunch of shit leads, it doesn't matter how good your sales rep is, the sales reps are not going to close them. And most companies fall into, I'm going to get a thousand shit leads and hope that three close, mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm going to get 10 good leads and watch nine close. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was a lot in there for uh, for CEOs to to think about. And actually, I have, I have one more, and I most I've watched companies... Um, not take this advice and I would highly recommend it especially in these um, it, for this audience. The medical device CEO or CMO or VP of marketing or whatever, when they go and try and hire their marketing director, the first thing on the, on the job requirements is going to say 15 years experience in medical device companies that um, sell to the emergency department. And when you set up the job description like that, what you're doing is you're hiring someone that's experienced, that has homogenous thinking, that thinks exactly and operates the same way as you, injects no creativity into your organization. If I was writing it as a medical device CEO, I would be targeting people that have worked in different, more progressive industries and teach them over the next three to six months, the FDA stuff. I would go out and hire people from software as a service companies from B2C, like more considered purchase tech companies. Those are some of the things that I would do. I mean, if you want, and those are, I would say more risky hires, like let's just just call it what it is. Just honestly, it's a more risky hire. But if you have success with one of those hires, they're gonna change the trajectory of your organization and propel you to future sustainability. The homogenous thinking that you hire with the 15 years experience, much more safe, but they're not gonna bring you a ton of new ideas about what to do. They're gonna bring you a Rolodex of people they sold with before, and they're gonna do this, do what you told them to do, or they're gonna think the same way that you think. Um, And so I would try in whatever department as a medical device CEO to inject different experience, backgrounds and thinking into my organization.
0: Yeah, I like how you unpack that. So what have you read recently or what are you reading that you think would be beneficial for us to be reading?
1: Hmm. Um, So um, I think the one that's probably most relevant for this audience that I really like, probably one of my top five favorite books is a book called digital Darwinism by Tom Goodwin, which essentially explains exactly what we were talking about before we started this podcast, which is that when there are major shifts People try and take the old way and move it into the new world. So when uh, the example that I gave, there's plenty of them out there is that when the television came out, the first ads on television were radio ads because people were so used to the radio. When there's a ton of iterations on, on that example Um, it, it basically explains in a, I think a very succinct and effective way why companies don't innovate. Gives How do you, you
0: prefer? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me, Chris. Go ahead.
1: It, it just. It, I think it just. Get, it could give some. Uh, it illuminates a lot of the really, I, really, uh, non-obvious weight reasons why companies do not take steps to move themselves forward. They are focused on their own. Profits and usually innovating requires either cannibalizing existing product or losing profit in the short term to go and develop a new platform, which then propels them forward, right? Um, Different things, different examples like that, or like let's look at a medical device company, for example, if you're thinking about becoming a marketing led company, but you need to make your numbers next quarter. It's going to be very hard to make that transition in any reasonable amount of time because you have so much sales overhead and you are stuck. And so over time, companies build up infrastructure and ways of doing things that makes it more and more challenging for them to change and do things in a, in a better and more innovative way.
0: Yeah, I like how you unpack that. So for people that want to connect with you, how do you prefer they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so uh, so LinkedIn's probably the best way. Chris Walker, CEO of Refine Labs. You can connect with me there. If you have questions, thought the podcast was cool. You can shoot me a message. Um, yeah, always happy to, uh, to jump on phone calls or answer questions or help. And, um, yeah, really look forward to, uh, to connecting with some of you, and I hope you find this valuable.
0: Chris, we did. Thank you so much for your timely and relevant experience, and we appreciate it.
1: Thanks, man. Talk to you soon.